Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good to see you here today, gathered to praise Christ and coming this morning again as the church to cast ourselves upon the mercy of God in Jesus. That's why we're here. So let's go to God in prayer one more time. We are in need of his help as we now look to the Bible. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you not from a position or in a posture of strength, but actually in a position of great need and weakness. And we acknowledge that our strength and our sufficiency can only come from you. And so we pray that you would come by your Holy Spirit now and minister to us through the preaching of your word. We pray this morning that you would show us yourself from your word, that you would show us ourselves as we really are, and that you would show us our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray for your help. We pray for these things to happen for our good. And we pray these things for the praise of your glory and for your son's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our sermon text today is not that long compared to some of the other ones that we have taken on in Mark's gospel. But that doesn't mean that there is not a lot to consider. There is much for our consideration this morning. There are just a couple of brief things that I want to say by way of introduction. The first is the sermon title. Uh, it's maybe up here on the screen. Yes, it's in the bulletins that you have as well. It's a pretty unoriginal, simple, straightforward sermon title. Jesus is the Christ. And if you've been here at CBC more than a few times, you probably know uh, that one of the things that we are committed to here is to herald the good news of Jesus Christ every Sunday, to hold Christ out to the saints every Lord's Day. And we do that because we understand that the Bible is about God's plan of redemption through Christ. That's the main point of this book. And so we preach every text with that main point in view. And so sometimes people might have the reaction. I trust nobody in this room does have this reaction. It's like, well, hey man, like you guys are just so geeked up about preaching Christ, you know, as though that's a maybe not a great thing. And our posture on that as we say in every membership class, is like, well, we trust that if people get tired of hearing about Jesus, they can find a different church, frankly, because we're here for Christ. We're here because of Christ and because we need him. And so we come every Lord's Day for that reason. I trust that's why you're here and that you are ready to hear of Christ this morning. Secondly, just very briefly, I don't want to bury the lead on this sermon this morning. We're going to consider how Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Pretty straightforwardly. And then we're going to think about how immediately after Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, Jesus begins to talk about his coming death. Peter will rebuke Jesus because Jesus starts to talk about his death. And then Jesus rebukes Peter. We're going to look at that today. And in all of that interchange, there is much to see with respect to what is known as or has been called a theology of the cross over and against the theology of glory. We're going to be thinking about that together this morning. That theology of the cross that Jesus articulates in this passage flies in the face of so much of what many of us have experienced in the American church. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. We are today in the 11th of 22 sermons through Mark's gospel. Up to this point, we have been reading from the gospel writer about the Lord Jesus, about his earthly ministry, about the things that he came and said and did. Mark has been pointing us, often in indirect ways, to the identity of Christ. For those who have eyes to see, it's been clear. But we reach a, a real hinge in the gospel of Mark today with Peter's confession, quite plainly, of Jesus as the Messiah. And so this is an important passage that we'll be looking at this morning for our understanding. Now that you've had time to turn there, I will read God's word for us, beginning with Mark 8, 27, reading through chapter 9 and verse 1. This is the word of God. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, 
and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I have three points for our consideration today, excuse me, and then one reflection. So three points and then a reflection that we will take on together. Point number one, same as the sermon title, Jesus is the Christ. Point number one, Jesus is the Christ. We'll be looking at verses 27 through 30 of Mark chapter eight for just a few minutes. Put your eyes there on verse 27. Pretty straightforward. Jesus is traveling with his disciples, and as they do that, he asks them a question. Who do people say that I am? We were introduced in chapter 6 to some of the confusion that exists, or that it did exist, I should say, as to who Jesus is. King Herod wasn't sure. Many of the followers of John and others were unsure of who this man is. The disciples then, in verse 28, start to tell Jesus of the various things people were saying about him as to his identity. You can put your eyes there, too. Some say you're John the Baptist, resurrected. John had been executed, but Jesus, some think that you're him, come back from the dead. Others say Elijah, either Elijah resurrected or perhaps the Elijah who was prophesied to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord by the prophet Malachi. Maybe that's who Jesus is. That's what some people thought. Or others are saying that you're one of the prophets. Again, either maybe a great prophet of old resurrected or Maybe something like we hear about in Deuteronomy 18, a prophet who would be raised up like Moses. Jesus is a great prophet who has come. That's the differing opinions that were out there about who he was. So then he turns the question more directly to the disciples in verse 29. It's a verse of massive, massive significance. He asks the 12, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior who would come. And then the familiar charge from Jesus in verse 30 to keep his identity a secret. So let's think together for just a moment. Peter's confession, the good confession that he makes, you're the Christ. What does that mean? What does that entail? It entails a lot of things. But just to list off a few, for Jesus to be the Christ means that he is the promised offspring of Abraham through whom the nations would be blessed and through whom God's people would have a land and blessing forever. The promised offspring of Abraham, Genesis 12, the promised offspring of Abraham, Galatians 3, through whom all of the blessings God promised to Abraham would be realized for God's people. That's who the Christ is. He is a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18. Moses does make that promise. God will raise up for you a prophet like me. And then we're told in the letter to the Hebrews that Jesus is the greater Moses. So that is what it means for him to be the Christ. He also is a shepherd king like David, his father by way of lineage. The Lord had promised that he would raise up one like David, a shepherd king who would 
shepherd his people, Ezekiel 34. God promised David in 2 Samuel 7, one of your sons, someone from your line, will sit on the throne of righteousness forever. This is who the Christ is, David's greater son. The Christ is also the servant of the Lord who would save God's people and atone for their sin and make them righteous, just like we read about in Isaiah 53. So that's what it means as well for Jesus to be the Christ. It also means that he is the great high priest of God's people, the greater Aaron, who would intercede for his people and make atonement for them. We read about the Levitical priesthood in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We read about it there, and then we read in the book of Hebrews most pointedly that Jesus is the fulfillment of the priesthood. For Jesus to be the Christ also meant that he would be the one who would fulfill God's law for God's people. We read about it again this morning. Through him, the many would be accounted righteous. We know from Galatians chapter 4 that at the right time, God would send his son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Matthew 5, 19 and 20. I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, Jesus said. For him to be the Christ meant those things too. For Jesus to be the Christ meant that he would be the one to secure resurrection for his people. 1 Corinthians 15. We will be raised because he was raised first. For Jesus to be the Christ means that he is the one who would save his people from their sins. Joseph said the angel, you will have a son by Mary and you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. For Jesus to be the Christ means that he is the one who would accomplish God's plan of redemption that started before the world began. Ephesians chapter 1. All of that, brothers and sisters, and more is wrapped up in that one statement, that brief phrase, you are the Christ. It means all of that. Praise be to Jesus' name. Point number two. We're going to keep making our way through here. Point number one, Jesus is the Christ. Point number two, Jesus is a suffering Christ. Point number two, Jesus is a suffering Christ. Let's put our eyes on verse 31. We're going to look at verses 31 to 33 for just a moment. So immediately after Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, Jesus begins to talk about his suffering, his coming death, his coming rejection, and the fact that he would then rise again. It's not a coincidence, right? Jesus is very aware of his mission. He knew what he'd come to do. So verse 32, we see that Mark tells us, like, there was no mincing of words here. There was no metaphorical speak. Jesus is speaking quite plainly to what he came to do and what he would suffer. This is noteworthy, right? In light of even the rest of Mark's gospel up to now, that's a pretty significant statement. He spoke very plainly about who he was and what he had come to do to his disciples. There will be a lot more talk like this from Jesus moving forward. This is the first of three times, for example, that he will talk about his coming death, his coming suffering, and his coming resurrection. He's going to talk in more plain terms regularly from this point forward. But then we see in the second part of verse 32 that Peter rebukes Jesus for talking about his suffering and his death. The man who had just proclaimed, you are the Christ, now immediately turns and rebukes Jesus for talking about dying on a cross, talking about being rejected, talking about suffering, talking about the fact that he would need to be raised from the dead. In Peter's mind, suffering and death and rejection is not appropriate for the Messiah. Suffering, death, and rejection is not appropriate for the Messiah. That's clear in the comments that Peter makes. But then Jesus, verse 33, he turns and he sees his disciples. So this is Christ's interest for all of them, not just Peter, but for all of their sakes. He's going to set the record straight, right? Jesus rebukes Peter in verse 33 quite sternly. Your strong words. He says, get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's mind is not set on the things of God, but on the things of man. His instinct and his thinking that says it is not appropriate 
for God's Christ to suffer. It's not appropriate for God's Christ to be rejected. It's not appropriate for God's Christ to die. That kind of thinking, that kind of instinct is not from God. It is from man. More on that later. But before we move on, we would be remiss if we didn't briefly think together about why it is that the Christ of God had to suffer and had to die. He had to suffer and die quite simply in the place of his people for our sake so that we might be saved from our sins and so that we might live with God forever so that those promises made so long ago to Abraham would be realized. So that the new heavens and the new earth where we dwell with God in a sinless, perfect existence in perfect fellowship with him and with each other would be real. We, many of us in this room, are familiar with the big grand story of the Bible about how God made all things out of nothing. How he made everything good. In particular, as the crown of his creation, he made human beings in his image. And how he made a covenant with Adam and Eve, our first parents. He told them to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over it as essentially a vice ruler under him. That's a lot of what it means to be image bearers of God is that we would rule like God over creation. And he told them that they were to work the earth, to cultivate it. He also gave them food to eat and he told them the one prohibition he made, you can eat of anything, but that tree over there, you're not to eat of that. And the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. Those were the arrangements. Those were the terms. And we know that in Genesis chapter 3, our first parents violated that covenant. They broke it. God is a just God. He keeps his word. And so in that day, when Adam and Eve broke that covenant, death came. Not physical death immediately, though their bodies began to die. But spiritual death occurred. The fall of man occurred, wrecking every aspect of our beings. This means that our minds are corrupted by sin. This means that our emotions are corrupted by sin. All of our faculties, our bodies are racked by sin. We are spiritually dead. We have hearts of stone. By nature, we are children of wrath. This is the presentation of Scripture, all because of that first sin of our first parents. In Adam, we fell. And so there's a serious problem. Sinners, corrupt people, guilty people don't live with God. But God, because he is not only just, he is also gracious and merciful and loving. And good. He's faithful. He is a covenant keeping God. The covenant that he made the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together, but in particular the Father and the Son before the ages began, that a people would be saved for God's own pleasure and for their own good. God promised the Redeemer to come. Immediately as sin enters the world, the promise of redemption comes. I'm going to send one, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the snake, the great enemy of God's people. And the rest of scripture is the unfolding of that great story. The cosmic treason that was committed in the Garden of Eden would be remedied by God's Christ, Jesus, who would come. He would atone for the sins of God's people. All of the wrong things that we have done and thought and felt and desired, he atoned for that. He came to satisfy the wrath of God for us because we deserve it. He came to give us righteousness because, see, we need not only our sins atoned for, our inherent corruption and inherent guilt that we inherited from Adam had to be dealt with as well. We needed righteousness. And so he came to provide that too. He offered himself as the perfect sinless sacrifice. And this great exchange happens where Jesus takes our sin and dies for it. And then we get his righteousness by faith. 
And it's by faith because we could never do what God requires. I sat here the last few minutes of the, the older classes at Covenant, like so our like middle and high school age students were sitting in here. It sounds like next week they're going to be talking about this wonderful question about is it legitimate for God to command things of us, to demand things of us that we are unable to do? It's a great question. The Bible is full of it, right? There are all kinds of things that we're commanded to do, demanded to do, told to do, that we in and of ourselves can't do. Ultimately, that's why Christ came, to do what we could never do for ourselves. When God says, obey the law perfectly and live, he means that. We can't. Jesus did. We trust in him. When he even gives us the call of the gospel to say, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He is the one who gives the power, the life in order for that to happen. It's just like I said this before. I'll say it again. It's just like Jesus resurrecting Lazarus in John 11. When Jesus says to Lazarus, come out of the tomb, that dead man in the tomb couldn't do anything in and of his own power. It's still a legitimate command. And here's the thing. The one who gave the command gave the life in order for that command to be obeyed. This is the message of the Bible. God saves sinners. This is good news. Because if it depended on you or me, heaven would be empty. And as it stands now, because salvation hinges upon God and the work of Christ, there will be no empty seats in heaven. God will save his people. Point number three. Just reviewing with you, I like to be overly redundant for the note takers in the room. Point one, Jesus is the Christ. Point number two, Jesus is a suffering Christ. Point number three, we follow the crucified Christ. Point number three, we follow the crucified Christ. We're going to be looking at verses 34 through 9, 1. Jesus calls the crowd to himself in verse 34, along with his disciples. This is a larger group that he is talking to, and he begins to teach them. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In verses 34 through 38, Jesus is teaching his followers what it will mean to follow him, quite simply. He tells them something of what they can expect. He tells us something of what we can expect in this life, this side of the new heavens and the new earth. It's really important that we realize that Jesus makes all of these comments on the heels of Peter's rebuke. Verse 32, Peter He's saying, Jesus, it's not appropriate for you to talk of suffering and rejection and dying. You're the Christ. You should be talking about glory. You're the Christ. You should be talking about triumph, not about death, not about suffering. And then Jesus in verse 34 and following is going to make it quite clear. Not only is it necessary that he should suffer and be rejected and die, He's going to tell all of his followers, anyone who would ever follow him, you should not expect a life of triumph and glory either. Not only will I suffer and die and be rejected, I will be raised, but anybody who comes after me ought not expect a life of triumph and a life of glory this side of the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus is going to the cross literally. Our lives are characterized by what we would call a theology of the cross. And we're going to be thinking about a lot of that together through the rest of our time. The biblical pattern is for, and this is the biblical pattern for Christ, and this is the biblical pattern for all of Christ's people. The biblical pattern is one of weakness and then glory. It is one of suffering and then glory. It is one of struggle and then glory. 
Now, on the one hand, it is right to say that glory and triumph already are ours in Christ Jesus. Amen? They are. Like, it's certain. It's secured. Glory and triumph will be our reality one day in the new heavens and the new earth, but not now. And it's critical that we keep that distinction in place. For now, we follow a crucified Savior. We follow a suffering Savior. He suffered. We will too. We are called to deny ourselves. Jesus says that in verse 34. Let him deny himself. The Christian life is most certainly a life of self-denial. We're called to deny our flesh. We talk about this all the time. It's the internal war, right, that we fight. Our spirit wages war against our flesh. We are called to deny the sinful desires of the flesh in the power of the spirit. The internal war wouldn't even exist if this call didn't exist. If God had not said, deny yourself, deny your flesh, then there would be no battle to fight internally. We would just do what we want to do all the time in the flesh. But as it is, we have a fight on our hands. We are also called not only to just deny the flesh and passions and lusts and desires and the like, we are also called to deny our ambition to seek glory and power in this life as though it's the greatest good. Let me say that again. We're not only called to deny ourselves in terms of our flesh, we are called in the context of what Christ is saying to deny our ambition to seek glory and power in this life as though it is the greatest good. Just to be very clear, brief comment, power and authority is good. Power and authority are good things. The problem is not with power. The problem is not with authority. The problem is with the human heart that corrupts power and corrupts authority. So you hear it said, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, that's somewhat true. But the foundational problem is in here. It's just like any other good gift of God. Money, right? Sex, pleasure, fill it in, right? It's a good gift. The problem is not with the gift. It's not with the giver. It's with our hearts that are jacked up. But still, the point stands. To pursue power and glory in this life as though it is the greatest good is not, okay, it's not to follow after the pattern of our Lord Jesus, we're to deny that ambition, realizing that power and glory and authority and all those kinds of things and triumph are reserved for a day yet to be realized. Ever since the fall, brothers and sisters, we value all the wrong things. That's obvious. Our value systems are messed up. And even in the church, we do this. Even in the church, we put a premium on power sometimes. Even in the church, we put a premium on strength. The scripture is clear that God's economy is altogether different. In verse 35, Jesus says that the person who seeks to secure his or her own existence, right, to save your life, that would include rejecting him to pursue our own ends. But if you do that, if you seek to secure your own life and your own strength, that's going to bring destruction and ruin for you. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses gives away his life, literally or figuratively, for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, will save it. And then he asks a couple of rhetorical questions here in verse 36 and verse 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Answer, well, nothing. It wouldn't profit him anything. Because the thing that really matters would be ruined. And then in verse 37, another question. For what can a man give in return for his soul? The answer to that is also nothing. He can't give anything in return for his soul. Moving on into verse 38, Jesus quite plainly states this. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, whoever renounces me, whoever rejects me, will stand condemned on the last day. 
So a couple of thoughts here, friends, on verses 34 through 38. And this is before we get to our big reflection at the end, but just a couple of thoughts. Jesus is calling his people to not live for this life on earth, but to live for the life to come. That's obvious. First thought on that. To not live for this life and to live for the life to come does not make sense to the world. How could it? Right? You realize that Christians, in the way that we think, in the way that we live, we're strange in this world. I trust that's pretty clear to everybody in the room. I'm not going to labor it. But the second thought about what Jesus is saying in verses 34 through 38 is that given the truths that God reveals in this book, to live for the life to come and not for this life makes entire sense. So it doesn't make sense to the world, but given the truth revealed in Scripture, to not live for this life and to live for the life to come makes entire sense. It is the epitome of short-term sacrifice for long-term gain. We think in those terms all the time, in this life. I'm going to suck it up in the short term. I'm going to sacrifice some things in the short term because I know in the long term it's going to benefit me. Suffering, hardship, rejection, struggle, and self-denial, I could go on, those things describe our lives now. But they won't forever. They won't forever. Life with God in the new heavens and the new earth won't have any suffering. Life with God in the new heavens and the new earth forever will not have a hint of hardship. There's no rejection. There's no struggle. There's no pain. There's no more self-denial. You ever thought about that? We're called to deny ourselves now. There will come a day when that's no longer the order of the day. You will not be called to deny yourself forever, just now. Jesus is no man's debtor, right? What he promises is more than worth it in the short term. And let's talk real. I mean, we're called, yes, to a life, an internal war that people who don't know Jesus don't experience. That's true. We're called to self-denial in a way that the world would say is nuts. That's true. But in the world, there is suffering. In the world, there is pain. In the world, there is struggle. In the world, there is calamity and disaster and the like. So much of this is just a part of living in a fallen world. But we are those who live in this fallen world with a hope that is certain because of Christ. Life outside of Christ is hopeless. Depression and Anxiety and suicide and things like that are reasonable in a world without Christ. Let's put our eyes on verse 1 of chapter 9 just briefly. In light of all of this that's been said, the denial and the suffering and the rejection and the like, it's not as though there won't be glimpses of glorious eternal realities along the way. There will be. There will be glimpses of these glorious eternal realities along the way. Jesus points to that here in this verse. There will be foretastes of glory and power. He says to the people gathered, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, brief disclaimer, there are all kinds of explanations about that verse. There are all kinds of things that have been said about what Jesus is talking about there. I'm going to give you my exposition and my understanding of this, and you obviously have your Bible in front of you, and you can do with that what you will. When we ask the question, what's he talking about? What's he talking about? There are people who are standing here who will not taste death until they've seen the kingdom of God come in power. All right, so first of all, to answer that question, we should look at the immediate context. That's always a good place to start. Let's put our eyes, for our purposes right now, on verse 2 of chapter 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Let's stop right there. Six days after Jesus had said what he said, truly there are 
Some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. Six days later, he took three of those people who were standing right there to witness his transfiguration. So, I mean, at a minimum, we can say this, that Mark is making a very clear connection between what Jesus is saying in verse 1 and then what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. These men would certainly witness the power and the glory of God's kingdom in a whole new way. So that's the first thing we can say. It's not the only thing we can say. Not only do we want to think about the immediate context of Mark chapter 8 and 9, we also want to seek to understand passages like this in light of a larger context, in light of the main story or point of the scripture, and in light of things that are going to be happening in the not terribly distant future, within the lifetimes of these people who would have been standing there that day. So, the transfiguration, the glimpse of the glory of God's kingdom that the disciples saw was a foretaste of something else that would happen not that many days later. And that's the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. If we think about the words that Paul writes in Romans 1.4, he talks about Jesus and says that he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus, biblically understood, is a display of the kingdom of God coming in power. There would be many who would have heard the words of Christ in Mark 9.1 who would have been alive when Christ was resurrected and would have known him to be raised. They would see the kingdom of God come in power. Not many days after Christ's resurrection would come another powerful occasion known as Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would come and would be poured out on God's people as the prophets had promised. Again, people who heard the words of Mark 9-1 would have been alive for them. So I think it's entirely legitimate to see all three of those realities, the transfiguration, the resurrection, and Pentecost as a fulfillment of what Jesus is saying in Mark 9-1. So that's that's my understanding. And I leave it to you to make of that what you will. Of course, all of those things, just kind of on a biblical trajectory note, all of those things, transfiguration, resurrection, Pentecost, they all are a foretaste of an even greater day, an even more powerful, glorious day in terms of the coming of the kingdom of God when the glory of Christ and his kingdom is consummated at the end of history. It's the trajectory of the Bible. So we can even see through these events to that great event to come. So that brings us, friends, to our our last portion of the sermon. We've considered our three points. We're now going to think about, wrestle with, consider together a reflection. And I'm going to give it this heading. It's a reflection on a theology of the cross. A reflection on a theology of the cross. This is not a true statement about CBC. But I think it is true in many, many churches and many circles in, in the West and in the States to talk about the cross and about what happened there and about why it happened and what that means for the Christian life is not wildly popular. To talk about the cross and what happened there and why and what that means for us is not wildly popular. We, and by we, I mean a proverbial we, we would rather talk about glory, like how to make our lives better, than we would about the cross. So if you've got your Bibles, turn them to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. These will be up on the screen as well. We're going to consider, and thinking about a theology of the cross, we're going to consider Jesus and the pattern set before us by him. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Just listen, follow along. I'm going to read these verses for us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Amen. For the joy set before him, that's an eternal reality, right? The joy set before Jesus was the joy that he would know forever with the people whom he would save. He, for the sake of the joy set before him, endured the cross. He suffered. We're told that he despised the shame. So this means, honest conversation. Jesus did not love the suffering. He did not enjoy the suffering and the shame, the rejection. Jesus is no masochist. He's no sadist, right? I mean, he did not enjoy that. By implication, we do not need to, we are not called to enjoy suffering. That's insane, right? Bad things happen in this world. Bad things are happening to many of us in this room, even now. And those things are bad and should be called bad. They're not good. We are not called to call bad things good in and of themselves. We can look at things like the loss of a loved one or cancer or depression or alcoholism or whatever it is. We can look at those things and call them bad, despise the suffering. As we hope in Christ and as we look to Christ and as we look to what he has secured for us, Jesus endured the suffering that he experienced looking to the joy and the glory that awaited him. We are called to do nothing different. Suffering and then glory. Weakness and then glory. To put it another way, right now, we live under a theology of the cross. There will come a time when glory will be the order of the day, but not yet. This is really important, what I'm, what I'm about to say. The cross was not just the means through which God atoned for the sins of his people. It was not just the means through which he atoned for the sins of his people. The cross was a revelation of how God works and functions with his people. God works through weakness. God works through suffering. God works through pain. These realities, weakness, struggle, suffering, pain, are the norm in God's economy, not the exception. I mean, frankly, brothers and sisters, that's the point that Jesus is making in Mark 8, 34 through 38. This is the way of the cross. This is what it means to follow me. Any theology that tells you, do this and your life will go well, any theology that tells you, do this and your experiences will be good. Any theology that tells you, do this and you won't suffer. Any theology that tells you, do this and you won't struggle. Or any theology that tells you, do this and you will no longer be weak. Has misunderstood scripture and is at odds with Jesus. And so much of our contemporary evangelical theology is aimed directly at progressing out of suffering. It's aimed directly at progressing out of struggle, progressing out of pain, progressing out of weakness. That's because it is a theology of glory. And that kind of thinking, brothers and sisters, is very similar to Peter's thinking for which he was rebuked by Jesus. You see, a theology of glory says, do this and you'll no longer be weak. A theology of the cross says, God works through weakness as we trust Christ. A theology of glory says, do this and you'll no longer suffer. A theology of the cross says, God works through suffering as we trust Christ. A theology of glory says, do this and you'll no longer struggle. 
A theology of the cross says God works through struggle as we trust Christ. You see the difference. They're worlds apart. Weakness is strength in God's economy. Weakness is strength. He tells us that most plainly in 2 Corinthians 12. When Paul talks about how God's strength is made perfect in his weakness, when Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. This is how God works, and the cross reveals that. It's not just the means through which salvation is accomplished, it reveals how God works. A theology of glory tells us to make ourselves better. A theology of the cross tells us to die to ourselves and serve others. It's a world of difference. The way of the cross, brothers and sisters, is not a pathway to progress. The way of the cross is a way of life itself. It's critical that we grasp that and own that. I'm going to illustrate this in a way that I hope is helpful. It's, it's poignant, I think. I hope it highlights just a difference in the thinking that exists between this theology of glory and the theology of the cross. I'm going to illustrate it with the scenario of a brother or sister is in deep grief over the loss of a loved one. A loved one has died. Grief is the order of the day. And you know this, like I know this, if you've ever grieved over anything intensely. Grief can be as sudden as laughter in the human heart. Like it just happens. It comes upon people in an instant. People are overcome by it. And a theology of glory comes into that moment and says, at least metaphorically so, well, you know, You'll see them in heaven. You'll see them in heaven. And remember, we're told we we shouldn't grieve as those who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4. Implication, like brother or sister, you should be progressing out of this better than you are. You should be doing better than you are. Whereas a theology of the cross comes into that moment and remains basically silent. There's no attempt to explain the pain away or answer every question because you can't. The theology of the cross understands that this kind of grief is terrible. It's terrible. And that what's going on in the heart and the mind of that person who's grieving is a battle to trust God. That God never fails on his promises and that somehow he is using this terrible thing for some kind of good. Because that's what he says he does. But it's the battle to trust that. Friends, in this life, we will suffer. One of my jobs as your pastor is to prepare you for that. To prepare you for that. So that when you encounter suffering and trials, you don't think something strange is happening to you. In this life, there will be struggle. In this life, we will be weak. We will be weak because we are still in our fallen state. We are at the same time justified in sinner. So what do we do? You might be sitting there like, well, brother, give me something. Like, what do we do in light of all of this? Back to Hebrews 12. There's several great things we can say from Hebrews 12.1 and the beginning of Hebrews 12.2. Let's lay aside every weight, right? Like distractions. Let's lay those aside. Let's lay aside sin, as the writer says, which clings so closely. How true is that? Sin clings so closely. Let's lay it aside. And then let's run the race with endurance. Excuse me. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus. By looking to Christ. That's how we run the race. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He has walked this road before we have. 
We look to Christ and to what he endured, what he accomplished, to what he has promised to all those who love him. So here at CBC, we are unashamedly people of the cross. There's a reason why throughout the history of Christianity, that cross has symbolized our religion. It's because we are people of the cross. It is an awareness of the cross, an awareness of our justification, of the fact that we were God's enemies, that we were rebels. It's an awareness of the reality that we have been adopted by God through the work of Christ on the cross that propels us forward in the Christian life. We are people of the cross because it is precisely there at the cross that we find hope. It's precisely there at the cross that we find rest in the midst of struggle. It is there that we find our peace in the midst of trials. And it is there at the cross that we find our salvation. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, for the fact that he has saved us, for the fact that God is sanctifying us by his spirit and that we will be glorified and resurrected one day to be with him forever. That's the good news. All by faith, all because of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, your word is incredible. It cuts us to pieces and then it puts us back together again. It tells us true things about the world in which we live in that are hard. And then you give us hope through your son and through your son alone. We pray for all of us that as we suffer and as we encounter hardship and as we struggle and deal with our own weakness and corruption, that you would sustain our faith in Christ, that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit, continuing to transform us and conform us into the image of Jesus. We pray that you would be with and bless our local body, that you would continue to work in us as a church, growing us in love and unity. We pray that we would bear one another's burdens and sorrows, that we would rejoice with those who are rejoicing, that we would love one another and walk together in a way that would be good for us and in a way that would honor you. We know that we are insufficient and unable to do those things, so we ask you to do them. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.